Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Good morning and the conversation begins here on 94 WIPO Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. July 9th, it's going to be a beautiful day. A little humid, but should be gorgeous out there. A good day to be out and about celebrating all the beauty of summer. And as we begin our show, we've got lots to do. It's time to say happy birthday to Tom Hanks, Courtney Love, and even O.J. Simpson. When we come back in just a bit, good conversation. My name's Peter Solomon, WIP Time 601. And we're back. My name's Peter Solomon. It's time for Good Conversation here on 94WIP. The medical profession heals the body. Well, holistic healers, intuitive transpersonal healers, heal the soul. And we're going to be talking to one of those soul healers today here on 94WIP as I welcome Leah Guy, her new book, a fascinating book called The Fearless Path, A Radical Awakening to Emotional Healing, and inner peace. Good morning, Leah Guy. Good morning. How are you? I'm fine. Good. Thank you for having me. I hope we're not talking about sports because this is no. going to be a short conversation. Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> right. Inner peace, emotional healing. What's that all about? Oh, boy. What's it all about? Well, it, it um, it's about different things for some people when you look at the superficial part of it, but um, underneath all of that, it's about finding our connection back to ourself. And that's the wholeness that comes with healing, that comes with doing some of this work. And um, it's why I wrote the book. All right. As I understand the book and what you do, how are you different from a good old therapist? Well, I look at, um, you know, you've, as you mentioned in the intro, a lot of people talk about holistic health. And I really am different in the way that I deal with the um, the mind, the body, and the spirit kind of um, as a whole. So uh, when I work one-on-one with a person, I will certainly do kind of a counseling talk intake. But then we move a little deeper into the emotional and spiritual part of our being and um, uh, discovering through the energy system, through the mind, through the emotional body, what's going on, like the patterns that have been um, at play, the imprints of our um, of our history, essentially, you know, things that have gone on in our life that are unresolved, that are causing issues still today. A lot of people, um, they have unresolved emotional pain, and we all do. You know, it's, it's very difficult, especially as young people, to deal with everything that comes our way. But as we get older, we start recognizing, you know, we start kind of, quote, emotionally um, breaking down like a car starts breaking down. You know, the oil hasn't been changed in a long time in a car causes problems or we haven't done a tune-up or what have you. So what I do is I work with every layer to help balance and restore and hopefully bring wholeness so that people can um, sleep better, have less anxiety, perform better at work. Um, reconnect with their life purpose, uh, discover the pain that's really been causing a lot of their upset. 
So, so we do a lot together in one session and um, primarily bring awareness to the issue because so many of us just stuff down our feelings, you know. What's an energy system? You talked about that. Well, energy system, so Eastern medicine operates um, off of the energy system, not exclusively, but they certainly use it more in their medical practice. Um, I'm sure you've heard of acupuncture or acupressure or um, even Tai Chi and a lot of these different exercises and so forth. Uh, basically, we have, we have energy, we are energy, and the energy radiates. Um, outside of our physical body, just like everything has energy. So as we, um, as we move and live and exist and, and have experiences and emotions and thoughts and moods and, and so forth, uh, environmental, uh, you know, uh, exchanges, then our energy shifts and it changes. And again, it's kind of like that imprint that I mentioned earlier. So um, if we have a habit, or uh, an ill health in our system, and our physical body, it shows up in our energy system in a way. And that's why we can do things like acupuncture and reflexology and polarity therapy and so forth and have improvement because we shift the energy in our energy field as well as in our physical body. And we also shift the energy in our emotional body, in our mental body. So it's kind of a subtle way to work with the body. Um, and it's particularly helpful for those people that have um, trauma, PTSD, um, you know, I've had difficult experiences such as myself and many other people, whether it's physical or mental, and um, create some change without getting directly into, you know, um, back into re-traumatizing the body or the mind. Now, one of the things yeah. you talk about is an issue that came up in that wonderful Disney movie, Frozen, where that character mm-hmm. sings, let it go. What's wrong with letting, oh, right. <laughs> yeah, what's wrong with letting it go? Well, everyone talks about letting go and just let it go, and I think it's pretty much the worst advice for emotional healing or well, for a lot of things <laughs> that that you can give because uh, you know, the idea sounds great. Oh, just let it go. Just forget about it. But what what people are really doing, well, they're spending a lot of energy trying to do this. Is there trying to deny what happened you know it's kind of like just forget about it and that's what's causing a lot of problems in our psyche so for example you had a terrible relationship let's say and it broke your heart and and it it feels very uncomfortable nobody likes pain and I'm not saying pain is enjoyable or you know uh, something that I want to deal with either but Pain can be beneficial. You know, it, it's, it's like fear. It's like um, it's giving us a signal that something's still not right. It's not healed. It's just like a physical wound on your body. When you have pain, it's a physical wound. You're reminded to take care of that part of your body. And so we, we do, hopefully, and we avoid infection and we avoid it continuing to grow and get out of control and take over our body. And the same is true for our emotional health. You know, when there's pain, it's a signal. It's telling us this is still raw. This is still needs attention. And if we don't give it the attention, then it starts to create other problems. It may not be right away, but that's what I mean when I say all of a sudden, you know, we wake up one day and we have anxiety. We have repetitive thoughts. We have 
uh, a distressed stomach, we have heart palpitations, we have insomnia. You know, these things can be from physical issues, but often they're from emotional issues that have just gone left un, un, unresolved. And we really need to start doing a better job of taking care of our wounds, just like we would a physical wound. So that let it go idea is basically a cheap way out that <laughs> doesn't work. It's like it's like a bad medicine, you know. It's it's um, there's no really and there's no real end result to it, um, and it keeps us ultimately. What it does is it disconnects us from ourselves, which is it just causes more pain. It causes fragmentation in the mind, dissociation, feelings of you know disconnection from ourselves and others. Uh, the inability to recognize some emotions that we need. And so it's really, it's just, it's a hard way to go. And, and, and it's like chasing your tail, you know. If we could all just let it go, then then uh, I think we'd recognize it and be in a different place. But the truth is we can't. Amen to that. Um, how do you work with someone? How do you, I, I know you ask a lot of questions to begin with. <laughs> How, how do you work with someone? Well, you want to do a session right now? No, I'm just no. kidding. Um, well, it's different. It's kind of different for everyone. And when I say what I do, it can sound a little, you know, woo-woo, I suppose, but at the risk of it, because uh, I'm not that kind of person. But, you know, I do I do a kind of an intake of a person. And when I say I'm a transpersonal healer, I do use all of what I can bring to the table, meaning my intuition, my insight, my my awareness into someone's body, mind, movement, connection, their response, reactions. You know, I, I watch them really closely, and I'm not judging them. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to make something up. But as I listen to what a person's telling me, then I'm I'm watching them, and this is part of the way I studied when I first went to school for meditation and energy healing, and and this kind of body-mind awareness. And so when they're speaking to me, I open up my senses and I'm hearing them and watching them and trying to help them really unfold what they're saying. So, for example, some person may come to me and say, you know, um, I'm having a hard time having a relationship because of the way my mother treated me. I just want to (laughs) let go of that relationship or that pain. She's a narcissist. I can't deal with her anymore. It's no good for me. It's a toxic relationship. It's time to move on. Help me. And that's what they're saying. What they're really saying, well, maybe, theoretically, what, they're, what they may be saying as I'm watching them, you know, I see their eye twitch, their discomfort in their stomach region, how they, um, they're shifting and moving. And I see their pain, essentially, express itself and causing that disconnection I just talked about a minute ago. And so as gentle as possible, I help them kind of reconnect to who they are and who they are in relation to this other person. So many people blame their problems, and I'm not saying blame as in a childish way, but it's, it's what we've come to learn to do. You know, we blame other people and experiences for our, for our current situation. And so when we... When we do that, we are basically outside of ourselves. We're constantly looking outside of ourselves to someone else or to some experience to make sense of how we're doing right now. And so what I try to help the person do is um, get into themselves, get into their experience, and reconnect with their true, authentic feelings. 
which can feel counter to what they're telling me. In other words, I try to help them connect back into their heart. And that heart-centered place, you know, it can sound um, soft and, oh, isn't that nice. But it is really the route to healing. So when I can help a person rediscover how they really feel, um, even if there's pain there, but also how they feel in a, in a real tangible way, like connecting back into the love that they felt for, for a person and recognizing and, and allowing that love to still be present. We can still deal with the pain and the upset and the hurt and the anger and the resentment and all that stuff. But we also have to deal with love because that's the part that's been shut off and that's what's causing so much problems. When the love isn't present, the compassion isn't present, the empathy isn't present, the self-forgiveness isn't present, the forgiveness for others isn't present, and it, it stops the flow of natural healing. And to do that, you know, then that requires trust. They need to trust me, trust the process, um, start to shift their energy, shift their awareness, open up um, to this possibility again and it's and it starts to shift everything in their body and so sometimes that love shut shut down creates other issues and it's not always just grief and love but you know it creates other issues in their energy system in their body in their mind and their emotions so at this point I put them on the table and I usually do a chakra reading and now you, you or a lot of people may not know what a chakra reading is but it's basically reading that energy field and, um, you know, we've come to learn there's seven main chakras. There's 12 minor chakras or 15 minor chakras and 115 uh, other minor chakras. But it's basically just energy fields around us that move in a particular way. And I do that just to confirm what I am sensing and seeing with the client. In other words, where we are storing some of this pain this blocked energy, this shutdown, and how it might be affecting our physical self. So a person may come and say, you know, I'm having terrible stomach distress or I don't feel safe. I'm having anxiety or panic all the time. And that leads me to understand their energy system in a way and how their mind and their energy system and their emotions are working together to create imbalances in their health. And just like an acupuncturist or just like a, a, another kind of physician or therapist or doctor and so forth, we try to restore that imbalance. And that's how we restore peace and harmony within the body, harmony within the emotional system and the mind. And so at that point, I do use my hands, hands-on healing. Um, it's an ancient practice that goes back to both Christian biblical ways and also to both, um, you know, other practices of uh, philosophy, tradition, religion, and wellness. And I use my hands, and I might also use other tools like sound healing, like vibrational tools. Um, I might use essential oils. I might, you know, there's various things that I might use according to what's going on with the imbalance in the body. And we use all this together, and that's a true holistic approach, bringing awareness to the mind, uh, opening the emotional system, opening the energy system, and working with the physical body to restore healing. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, 
Leah Guy. She's the author of The Fearless Path, A Radical Approach to Emotional Healing and Inner Peace. How do we get blocked, though? What happens? I mean, how does the body store trauma? Well, in the, in the book, I mention a term called PTED, which is post-traumatic emotional disorder. It's similar to PTSD, except I believe most all of us, if not all of us, have PTED to some degree. And the difference is, is that PTED is like a softer version. PTSD, we know, comes from um, typically kind of a shocking, you know, abrupt um, issue, change, or trauma. Not everyone goes to war or experiences rape or have some, you know, kind of uh, relational trauma that is um, what we would quote large. But we've all had um, guilt, shame, being bullied, embarrassment, grief, etc., especially from a young age that we don't know how to process. And eventually that um, unprocessed emotion gets stored. It gets stored in our fat cells. It gets stored in our energy system, in our body. So, um, like I said, we, we, uh, we kind of stuff it down in the way that we do it. Some people do it, um, you know, they do it kind of internally and, and like food, you know. Some of us have problems digesting food and we hold on to it and we don't want to let it move through our body and digest and process and then release. Well, we do the same kind of thing with our emotions. We get pain and we don't want to feel it. So essentially we kind of trap it in a way. And we do this because we believe if we trap it, then it's not going to be able to hurt us again. And if it can't hurt us, then we won't feel pain over and over and over and over. What happens, though, really, is as we trap it, and wherever we trap it, we may trap it in our stomach, we may trap it in our heart. A lot of people trap pain in their shoulders and that heaviness, that grief, that fear. Some people trap it in their legs and their hips. There's different areas that we, we tend to trap this kind of um, emotion and energy, but it does reside in our tissues. And um, we see this, especially like with massage and deep body work, um, you know, people that don't even work out sometimes or don't have sore muscles have very sore uh, tissue. And it's often this unresolved emotion. And so we trap it to try to keep it from reattacking us. But what it does is it, um, it blocks and starts to create knots and, and blocks in our system uh, that, that don't allow the normal flow of health and wellness and emotions. Emotions are emotions. They're emotive. They are meant to move and be in motion constantly. And they change and they flux and they, just like a river, you know, they're constantly kind of moving through us. But when we block them, then we keep it from, uh, keep that energy from moving fluidly. And that's what eventually starts to feel like, uh, you know, you often hear somebody say, I feel stuck or I don't know how to move forward, I don't know how to move on, I, and, and I feel trapped. And that's usually what that is. It's that kind of blocked emotional energy. So really, if I understand what you're saying, we may put something we think behind us, but has a way of coming out of the closet and saying, booga booga. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you know, and I use that term too, but... 
and and we can get really philosophical here if you want, but you know, if we practice the now, practice being here now, which is the the form of mindfulness. So we're here, and who are we, and what is now? You know, we can go on and on and on for days about that. But my belief is that we don't really put anything anywhere. It just is. It's with us. And that's what's hard for people to accept, that that experience has, shift, has shaped and shifted me into who I, who I am now. So it is part of my being. It's part of my is. It's part of my I am. It's part of now. Even though it may have happened a long time ago and it's, quote, over, you know, how over is it? Um, when I try to leave it back there, it's essentially like I'm trying to leave a part of myself back there. That's that whole letting go idea. That's that detachment. That's the separation from, for me anyway, and I will only speak for myself right now, although I do help a lot of people with this idea, when I'm when I was recovering and through my healing process, I have to accept what is, and that what happened to me when I was five or twenty-five or forty-four point seven two nine or however old I am or whenever things happened were real. Just like I'm real. If I'm having a real experience, I have to accept that real experience, and so it becomes part of my experience. And that's all I am. Leah, when's a book like yours enough, and when do we need to go further and find somebody to help us? I I think we always need to go further. I don't think that there is a book. There's a lot of books that can help awaken a person um, and really, you know, connect with the person. But I think we always need to go further. I, I... it's the reason there's not, you know, one other person in, in your world. There's hundreds of people in your world. We need so many different um, inputs, experiences, connections, understanding. You know, we are really intricate people, and and we need each other. And, uh, you know, I need your mind, and you need mine, and I need your compassion, and you need mine, and it goes on and on and on. So I, I, I don't think, I would never suggest that my book is the, the heal-all. Okay, then, if we want to find somebody to help us doing some of the things you've said, how do we mm-hmm. begin locally? Do you have any advice? Well, there's, um, yeah, and that's a great question because there's a lot of people that um, are very helpful, and then there's, you know, people that might have good intention but aren't quite qualified. Um, you know, there's some the, some boards and some organizations and so forth, especially like with body work and so forth. I would certainly make sure that, you know, if you're getting massage or some kind of body technique, which is very effective for um, healing some of the emotional stuff, that you make sure they have their certificates and licenses and so forth. And then there's other people that I would say, um, you know, experience and time does give a lot of credit. You know, uh, no matter how many dots are behind somebody's name, if they, um, you know, their personal experience and their experience in time working with other people. So, you know, it, unfortunately, it is kind of a hunt and peck situation. I know for me, I have I have talked to hundreds of different people and I've been to many different sessions and 
and help. And, you know, not everyone resonates with everyone, so you kind of have to do your homework. Amen to that. Yeah. And I'd like to say thank you to Leah Guy, her new book, The Fearless Path, A Radical Approach, A Radical Awakening to Emotional Healing and Inner Peace. Thank you, Leah. Mm-hmm. It's been delightful. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. We'll be back after these messages. And we're back. It's Conversation. My name's Peter Solomon. My next guest, Heath Fogg Davis, is an associate professor of political science at Temple University. Go Temple. And his <laughs> new book, Beyond Trans, Does Gender Matter? Good morning, Heath. Good morning, Peter. Good to be with you. My pleasure. Does gender matter in our society? Yeah, a good question. <laughs> um, and my answer is that um, when it comes to a lot of public policies, um, and in particular administrative policies uh, that govern things like bathrooms and the sex markers on our driver's licenses and birth certificates and things like that, that it, that it doesn't or it shouldn't be included. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's not important as a social idea and also as a personal identity. So, yeah, so I, I try to draw that distinction in the book. But uh, the presumption right now with a lot of our policies is that it does matter, and you see this whenever you fill out a form uh, for various things. We're typically, you know, really very often asked to check a male or female box um, and so the book is really asking that question, well, why, why are we being asked to do that? Is, are there good reasons to do that? Um, and the reason why I ask that question is because for, for some people, um, the question uh, triggers uh, dis- discrimination, um, and in particular talking about um, transgender and non, uh, non-conform- gender nonconforming people in particular. Um, those questions can can be the source of discrimination. So, um, so that's my answer. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about then transgendered people. Because um, yeah. when I was growing up, there were two categories: you were either male or you were female. Mm-hmm. Now we have transgender and gender fluid, which mm-hmm. confuses a lot of people and causes a mm-hmm. lot of societal consternation. There's an issue I think down south, in particular, I think it's North Carolina or South Carolina, that said. If you're, you use the bathroom, the public bathroom, where the equipment you were born with says you should go. And mm-hmm. what you are versus your equipment can be two different things. Yeah, and I, I would, I see what you're saying, hear what you're saying with um, the quote-unquote equipment, but um, I think we, we should be specific um, so if we are talking about our bodies and in particular uh, genitals, then then that really brings to the forefront the, the question of relevance. <clears throat> How relevant is that to um, where we go to use a public restroom? Um, uh, this is not this is information about ourselves that we typically uh, that's not known. We don't see each other naked uh, walking around typically and. Um, what our bodies look like uh, and, and, and how we feel about our gender uh, in a lot of cases isn't really anybody else's business um, but that individual's. And I think uh, you're, you know, you're, um, you're bringing up the, the bathroom bill in North Carolina, and this was the first and only state so far to have 
um, introduced and passed that kind of legislation. Um, it was, of course, repealed subsequently, and there are a number of states that have introduced similar bills, but no state uh, other than North Carolina has passed such a, a bill. When you really break down that particular uh, piece of legislation, it, it really is nonsensical in, in so many ways. Um, number one, it stated that it didn't talk about your equipment. It talked about what it says on your birth, birth certificate. So um, it said whatever uh, gender marker is on your birth certificate, um, then that uh, that's the sex-segregated public restroom that you have to use in public buildings in North Carolina. Um, when you break down the logic of this, um, typically most of us don't carry around our birth certificates uh, with us, and you would have to literally have a kind of like a bathroom bouncer, um, which is the title of one of my ch chapters, standing outside of each public restroom and inspecting people's documents and then inspecting their bodies. So that if, if you really talk about what that a law like that says um, and, and start to really uh, – uh, you know, disentangle it and, and, and see what it, it actually would, would look like in practical terms, um, it's deeply problematic. And it goes to this idea that a lot of our gender policies are just social customs. We keep on doing these things because we've been doing them for a very long time and we can't imagine doing them any differently. Um, but in the book, I, I propose some solutions that are pretty low cost and I think um, Things that we should do, like in, uh, build bathrooms differently in the public sphere. Uh, and if you think about this, um, in, in here in Philadelphia, we have some really terrific uh, examples of this in some of the restaurants in uh, downtown Philadelphia, Center City. You have gender-neutral uh, restrooms where there's just a floor-to-ceiling floor partition of individual toilet stalls. People can have their privacy, and then you go, and there's like a common area with sinks and mirrors, which there's no reason to gender segregate those spaces. Um, so I think if you build bathrooms in a way that gives people individual privacy, uh, regardless of their gender identity, um, you've solved the problem. This is true, but even in gender segregated bathrooms, I mean, if you're a transgendered woman and you're or a transgendered man going into the bathroom, you're going to go into the stall and close the door, and anybody who peeks to see what you are needs to get a smack in the head. Right, and we should build things. I mean, the point of building uh, partitions in a way that are like floor to ceiling is that people uh, are not able to, quote-unquote, peek. <laughs> so I don't think anybody wants to be observed uh, when they're using the bathroom, uh, regardless of what their bodies look like. Uh, and it would be a, it would be a, I, yeah, your, the, your example of somebody peeking uh, is problematic. And um, we, we uh, you know. Okay. Yeah. We, that, that would be strange under any circumstances. Yeah. Cause to get arrested <laughs> if, you're, exactly. if you're peeking. Um, right, right. But it creates such anxiety in people. That's what I don't understand. What are you going to? Yeah. What are you getting anxious about? Do you have any thoughts on that? I think that, that there's. Um, I think a lot of the issue. What, what, what I think what we're talking about here is um, <clears throat> an, a set of experiences, and for transgender people, um, there's a whole range of 
of different experiences with gender identity. <clears throat> so it doesn't just mean one thing. Um, that we're talking about something, uh, an experience, set of experiences that are in the numerical minority. So this is a sort of, a, at least at this point in our culture. So it's true, and I point this out in the book, and um, that the majority uh, of, of people are, you know, uh, assigned a particular sex at birth, and they go on to live their lives <clears throat> identifying with that same sex. And so the concept that these two things could be different for somebody um, at some point in their lives, at different points in their lives. You talked about gen the term gender fluid, so um, that is meaning that for some people they might feel uh, a combination of both male and female, or they may not want to identify at all with those categories. And we have this term non-binary right now um, that's being introduced in our culture. So we are talking about a minority of experiences, and that's always difficult for the, the majority to handle. That's why it's so important, and I talk about this in my book, that's really why civil rights legislation uh, is in place for experiences and identities that don't necessarily make sense to the majority. They might not understand it, and they might not approve, and that's why you have to have policies in place to protect um, the right to individual self-determination uh, self when it comes to gender. Otherwise, the experiences of the majority will simply trample, you know, over over the rest. And in, you know, in political science, we always talk about this term, tyranny of the majority, um, that's so central to um, understanding why we need civil rights laws in the first place. And certainly we have tyranny of the majority. Every time I read about a transgendered person getting beat up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the, so and and the the consequences, as you indicate, and and here in Philadelphia, in particular, um, there have there have been many um, uh, brutal murders of transgender women, uh, in in particular transgender women of color, um, and that's true uh, tragically throughout the the country. Um, often, people who appear. And I, I'm very careful in the book to point this out. So the people who appear to other people to be transgender are typically the ones that are targeted for uh, violence and not, not just physical violence, but also the day-to-day -day kind of um, verbal harassment on, on public streets and on you know, public buses and just where people are walking around um, can take a toll on the individual. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, so the, con the, the whole bathroom bill kind of discussion in our culture, um, like I wrote an, art, an article, an op-ed for CNN about this back when Trump, uh, Pat, the administration rolled back Obama's, um, ga uh, guidelines that Title IX should be interpreted by schools to include, um, transgender, uh, protection, um, a lot of the conservative like backlash that you know that I got from writing that article just comes from a complete misunderstanding uh, of the issue and a trivialization of it. And so, talking about bathrooms seems to be like why you know why do we need to talk about that? That's such a you know it it impacts so few people and it's such a ridiculous issue. Um, but that you can draw the links all the way down or make the connections to 
the various forms of violence that transgender people experience in our society. So there's the physical violence, the attacks, um, murder, and also various forms of discrimination in workplaces, in schools, um, in public accommodations. So the day-to-day kind of harassment that a lot of transgender people experience. Um, but I should point out, not, not all. So there are gender-conforming trans people, and I probably fall into that category, and so I don't experience a lot of day-to-day discrimination in the public sphere because nobody notices. Uh, I, I look like just a, a short guy <laughs> with glasses, and uh, I don't get a hard time. So that, that goes to this idea that we don't, we're already sharing public bathrooms and a number of other facilities with trans people. We don't even necessarily know it, you know? And at the same time, what we talk about as transgender discrimination is something that affects people who don't identify as trans. So um, people who are, you know, uh, masculine appearing women, feminine appearing men um, get a hard time in the public sphere, get harassed in public bathrooms for not looking the quote-unquote right way that a woman should look, whether it's in the way that, you know, a person dresses or they they talk, their gestures, and, and all of those things. So it seems like a small is- issue, but then when you really start to talk about it and try to get at this in the book, it really is something that, that affects a much wider range of people. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Fogg Davis. Associate Professor of Political Science at Temple University and author, Beyond Trans, Does Gender Matter? And for every trans person who gets beat up, we've got people like RuPaul or um, the new and improved Bruce Jenner as an example of transgendered people who are out there in the public eye making a lot of money and being respected in a lot of ways. Uh, yeah, and I'm not sure. Um, I haven't watched uh, RuPaul's uh, show in, in a while, um, but I don't. I don't believe that RuPaul identifies as, as transgender. So that goes to this whole issue um, uh, of the the variation and how people. You know, there's like the, there's the first person sense of ourselves, our our, our self identities how we think about ourselves uh, gender-wise, and then there's how the rest of the world sees us, you know? And so um, when we're talking about discrimination, we're talking about how other people see us, and they can get it, quote-unquote, wrong or uh, mis- misunderstand, you know? Um, so I, I think it all gets gets very interesting. Um, and uh, Caitlin Jenner... Uh, that's an interesting scenario, I think, where you're talking about somebody in the public eye um, uh, who transitioned you know, very late in life, and that's a different uh, experience from – there's a wonderful show called I Am Jazz. Um, I forget the network, but it's about a transgender girl who uh, tr- transitioned at a very young age. So um, the show kind of follows her family um, through this process, and now – um, I believe she's 17 or 18 and getting ready um, uh, to, to you know, transition into into adult life. But so that's a very you can imagine that that would be a very different experience. Um, uh, spending 
one's basically entire life um, uh, coming to terms with that experience early in one's life versus um, I'm not sure how, how old Caitlyn Jenner wa was, but, but got to be 60s, I would think, something like that. Do you think shows like that help, though, or do they hurt? Um, I, I, I mean, I'm not, I have to say, just, I wasn't a fan of, um, the, uh, the whole, like, Kardashian, uh, reality series, and I was never really a big fan of, of, of Caitlyn Jenner, just for a variety of reasons. I do think that the I Am Jazz show is, helps a lot, <clears throat> and I've, I've heard a lot of my students reference it and people talking about it, because, it gives that human um, dimension uh, to this issue that it, that is so crucial, um, and it gives it in the context of a family that is uh, working through issues like every family does, but they have um, uh, an issue that's that that is uh, is is not unique, but is again in the minority of of uh, experience at least to date. So I think really just like showing all of the, the dimensions of the, the human experience. So there's like a tendency, and we went through this with sexual orientation that like, you know, um, talk about uh, LGBT people or gays and lesbians that the focus was always on, on sex and what, what, are they, you know, what are they doing? And um, there wasn't an emphasis on the fact that this is about two people loving each other. Um, and we got at some of this, I think, with gay marriage. But I think, I think whenever you can add the human stories, and I try to do that in each of the case studies that I talk about in the book to really – uh, bring the voices not just of trans people, but of people who identify as the sex that they were assigned at birth, but um, are gender nonconforming in appearance, and then get a lot of um, uh, get hassled in our society because of that. Well, but you know, talking about sex and what people are doing, there's nothing mm -hmm. people of alternative sexual lifestyles do that you won't find in a heterosexual marriage manual. Mm -hmm. So what's the big deal? That's something else I don't understand. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, it, we're at a point in our culture now, um, I, it, it's, it's certainly not true that we don't have any uh, discrimination based on sexual orientation. That is absolutely not, not true. But we've come a long, long way. And you see this, the cultural shifts I see as a, as a professor, because I'm, you know, I, I, you know, every year I'm, I'm teaching and working with young people who are 18 to, you know, in their early 20s. And that particular issue is basically a non-issue for most of my students that when we talk about sort of gay rights, it's really like they're interested in, in the history of it. And they're kind of, they're dumbfounded by why this was ever such a big deal. Um, and I think that we're getting to a similar place with gender identity. And so, you know, for older generations, um, it could be uh, something that is still very, like you said, confusing, um, challenging. But for you know, Time Magazine did a, a write-up a few months ago, and based on a survey, like up to 40% of young people identify as gender fluid or, or gender nonconforming in some kind of way. So. We will, we're seeing a shift in how we talk about the issue. It, 
you know, the, the analogy here with, with transgender identity um, has always been that, that, you know, when people get interviewed, they're asked about how you put it, their equipment and whether they've had surgeries, questions that are now, you know, we're starting not to see that happen as much because they're incredibly invasive and they're totally irrelevant. So, you know, you're not asked about your equipment and uh, people aren't, typically we don't, that's not a polite thing to, to, to ask somebody about. So, um, so I'm, thankfully we're moving a little bit beyond that and we're talking about gender identity, not just as um, what your body looks like underneath your clothing, but also your brain and how you feel and where, where you feel a sense of comfort in our society, given that we do still um, think that gender matters in a lot of ways socially. So I, I think that there's a lot of progress that's being made, and it'll be interesting to see what this issue looks like in the next five years or so. Sounds like you have hope that things are going to change. I do. I'm always hopeful. And it's not that I'm uh, naive or unaware of the the people who dig their heels in and just um, uh, be cruel and discriminatory no matter what. But I also think that for a lot of people, they want to do and say the right thing with this issue. They're not out to harm trans people, but they might not fully understand the concept. And that's why I wrote the book. Uh, the book is written from a, the perspective of optimism that people, most people, I think, or at least I have to believe, have good intentions. They just maybe don't know exactly what to do, and that's where we come back to the policies. Um, removing gender from some of the forms when it's not necessary can be a real step in the right direction. Or when we want to include it in a policy, just making sure that you explain to people why they're being asked this question and uh, what the definition of it is. Okay, I want to get in the few minutes we have left to another issue, and that's, <coughs> excuse me, single-sex colleges. What do you think about that? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I have a chapter on this. Um, the, the, there's been that controversy um, in the last, um, I don't know, three to five years, particularly for uh, private women's colleges, um, cases where transgender women were uh, wanting to apply to places like Smith and Mount Holyoke and Barnard. And um, these, a lot of these institutions were not prepared for, uh, for those, um, those applications. And there was a lot of stumbling around and trying to figure things out. We're now at a point where a lot of those institutions have adjusted their admissions policies um, to say that transgender women are welcome to apply. Um, but it goes to this issue whenever you have, like, a, a women's college, and there are some private men's colleges too, only about three of them left, the majority are, are women's colleges, you have to have some definition of, of the term woman. And so that's where they have really kind of struggled. I argue in the book that the mission of women's colleges uh, is incredibly important, that these institutions have produced uh, female leaders like uh, Hillary Clinton and Madeleine Albright and uh, any number of female leaders, and that has a lot to do with the structure. I think that they should keep the mission and the goals of uh, intact, but I think that as a matter of civil rights um, and discrimination that you have to open admissions um, to everyone. And so my recommendation is that we start to talk about those institutions in the same way that we talk about historically black colleges and universities, so that we might want to change the term to 
historical women's colleges um, to highlight uh, the importance of the historical mission, which is to remedy sexism in our society. Um, and so I think you can do that, um, but at the same time make a policy adjustment uh, that uh, jibes with uh, gender equity. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIP. I want to say thank you to Heath Fogg Davis, author oh, of the new... Thank you, Heath. Also, thank author you so of, Go ahead. Author of the new book, Beyond Trans, Does Gender Matter? And I had a friend once at work who used to have an answer to all of these problems. When asked race, he said human on the forums. And when asked sex, he said yes. Maybe that's the answer. Thank you, Heath. Okay. Thanks a lot, Peter. Bye-bye. Bye. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIP. Stay tuned for WIP Sunday. Always good conversation continuing on 94 WIP. It's going to be a beautiful day out there, maybe a little humid, but a good day to be out and about and enjoying the sunshine. Nothing left to say except thank you to Phil Jackson, this morning's producer, and to Ann Todman-Solomon, my dear wife and associate producer. Couldn't do the show without either one of you. And finally, nothing left to say, but see you soon. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.